generally speaking, you can find the money to get it done. If I had my choice between vision and money, I'd take vision. This is episode 302 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. A few weeks ago, Christopher sat down with his old friend, Gary Evans, who's a retired president and CEO of Hiawatha Broadband Communications. They had a great conversation about the company and life as a small, independent ISP for episode 297, but there was still so much to cover. Gary and Christopher are at the mics again to continue their conversation about Hiawatha Broadband Communications. They're talking about the challenges the company's faced and overcome and prospects for the future. Once again, this interview is a little longer than our usual podcasts, but we know you'll be glad we kept it that way. There's lessons to be learned and interesting stories to hear. Now here's Christopher with Gary Evans. Welcome back to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in St. Paul, Minnesota. I guess our office is technically in Minneapolis, but I'm a St. Paul boy myself. Um, I'm here with Gary Evans once again, the still retired founder <laughs> of HBC. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be back. We talked a few weeks ago and you said you have a habit of not staying retired for long, but thus far. Well, um, I'm uh, doing um, some work that I'm really loving uh, for a private equity firm in New York City that's concentrating in the area of fiber optics. Okay. And so another way, hopefully, to help rural America, uh, because we're going to be looking at markets that the big players don't seem to have much interest in today. Well, I think that's a good place to pick up where we left off. Last time, we mainly talked about the history of HBC. And one of the key lessons that we took away is that there is a very strong business model in connecting the areas that Wall Street has tended to overlook, the, the smaller towns in America. Not necessarily the tiniest ones, but the, the decent-sized ones that are very common. You know, um, that's, that's exactly right. And, and for... Me, at least, it seems you can make a case even for the tiniest if you have a nucleus of the not so tiny, mm -hmm. not the tier one markets, but the Winona's at 35,000 and the Red Wings at 25,000, allow you to pick up a community like Minieska which when we built it was 68 dwelling units. Mm -hmm. They had a problem. Um, they didn't have any emergency warning system that was effective. And so one of the things we did there was to collaborate with the city to put warning devices connected to the network in each of the homes. So last Wednesday, um, as we're recording this two days ago, the first Wednesday of the month in Minnesota, they probably got some kind of a warning there. They probably did because everybody got dumped on, at least in this part of this. Right. Well, those are also the, the tornado warnings I was thinking of, which oh, I think is right. a very big deal around oh, here. Oh, it is. It's, it's huge. And that was, that was actually the motivating factor that drove them. Um, and uh, I was really pleased when we were able to work that out. Uh, we had fiber running from Winona to Wabashaw, and dropping off at Minieska, for instance, was not a difficult thing to do. Probably and, an afternoon job, right? <laughs> right, and because we were leveraging resources back in Winona as well, we were able to add that without you know, more than the cost of the connectivity to the home. So it was a nice thing to do. Well, if anyone missed our first episode, uh, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen uh, to the episode in which we started talking about HBC, because I'd like to pick up um, with one of the things we didn't get to, which is how HBC has helped to run other networks. And I think it makes sense to start chronologically with what I think was the first one of this sort, which was Monticello, which is a community northwest 
southwest of Minneapolis. It's a little bit away from your home territory. Uh, but they wanted to build a municipal network. They did not have a municipal electric department, which is very common among citywide municipal networks. And they reached out to you. And you were essential in, in helping them to uh, get educated, get inspired, uh, pass the referendum with 74% support, and um, get the network built. Uh, we, we enjoyed our association with Monticello, even though I suppose everybody would look and say, well, it certainly didn't end in a place where you expected. And while that's true, um, I think we learned a couple of things. We learned some very valuable things there. Um, and, and interestingly enough, sometimes the things you know best, you, you can forget about. Um, you know, as, as we built Winona, it was extremely important that we were local. And our successes were based largely on the fact that, you know, our friends and acquaintances became our customers. Uh, as we got north of the Twin Cities, that wasn't quite so evident. And um, finding the employee base that could um, take on the HBC culture was difficult, um, even that far from home. You know, we're sitting here in Cannon Falls, and um, Cannon Falls, the bank that we're in, has an affiliation with the bank in Winona. And uh, I remember the merchant CEO saying to me once, you know, when we're able to install our own person in the banks we acquire, we do really well. Um, when we have to go with someone who isn't familiar, we don't do as well because it's a cultural issue. And so I think some of the problems we had in Monticello that ultimately resulted in our withdrawal from the project and, and sort of a difficult then transition for Monticello, I wish could have been avoided. Probably made sense for both areas, and I'm pleased that the network is seemingly running well today. I, I think that it's a, it shows a character of a person. When you take uh, a, a project that came to an unsatisfactory conclusion, one in which I know from personal experience had both what we might call endogenous problems and exogenous problems, as, as the fancy economists like to say, which yes. is to say problems on the inside with, with what you and Monticello did and problems on the outside. That's correct. One of the, the biggest problems Monticello faced was that charter came in, and, and as I understand, and some numbers were provided to me back in the day, um, Charter began offering an insane deal, the best deal that they've offered anywhere, to my knowledge. They took a product that was $145 a month everywhere else in the state, and they reduced it to $60 per month. It was every channel, the fastest broadband speeds they had available, $60 a month guaranteed rate for two years, clearly losing money on every single subscriber who took that every month. Now, you could have said that first, but instead you, you noted some of the, the things that you said, because I know the growth really dropped off a cliff at that point. Well, it did. Um, uh, that um, started as we were there, but really accelerated after the decision for us to go away. You know, I expect when that started, Charter might have been worried about, well, what are they going to do next? Um, we had obviously hurt them badly in Winona, and um, we were about to hurt them in Red Wing. It was kind of interesting to me, you know, Charter closed all of its local offices, and the first one it, it opened again was in Red Wing as we were building that network. Um, so, yeah, the, there were a lot of, of those um, problems but I also think that we were some of the problem. And, and when I say we, it's because local knowledge is critically important. I don't think we had um, as much of that as we should have. There was another thing, too, and that is because we didn't have it, the city 
was more interested in providing advice than we were interested in listening. Um, hindsight being what it is, we probably should have listened more, and they perhaps should have given less advice. Um, but I'm pleased that the network is still operating and and seems, I think, to be doing well. I uh, also retained some friends from Monticello, including Jeff O'Neill, who is um, the city administrator there. And um, anywhere that I would live, I would I would like to have him as a city administrator. He puts his heart and soul into he, it. He really does. He's a very good man. I'm pleased that I got to know him. It's worth noting that the project did not succeed financially. There was a struggle with the bonds. On the other hand, from the perspective of local businesses, prior to you and Monticello doing this, they were sending their employees home in the afternoons to work from home because their offices were incapable of supporting, in 2008, a modern workforce. That's absolutely correct. Now they have far better connectivity than I can get anywhere in St. Paul. That's an advantage of... The vision, you know, people always talk about money. And to me, money's not nearly as important as vision. If you have the vision to do something that is critically needed and no one has stepped up to do, generally speaking, you can find the money to get it done. If I had my choice between vision and money, I'd take vision. Uh, maybe that's because I don't have money. but I'm <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's worth reminding people. I, mean, it's, I think some people might hear that and cynically think, well, government is always going to find money by picking someone else's pocket it would be the most uncharitable way of saying it. But you're saying that as a perspective of a business owner as well. I am. The vision is the most important thing. Absolutely. You know, I, I think back to um, the first seeds of HBC and the first vol- call I got from the founder of Fastenal saying, I think we should look at this new thing called fiber optics. And, um, you know, it demonstrated to me that a good business person is very much aware of the things happening, even if it would appear that there would be no help in it for that particular business. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So if we move on a little bit, and actually this this is happening concurrently, you started working with uh, City of North St. Paul, which is a, a small suburb, or it really has its own independent character in, uh, north of St. Paul, Minnesota. And there, I'll just briefly summarize, I think Comcast may have done you a, a bit of a favor because you hadn't yet learned the lessons from Monticello. Um, the city of North St. Paul was very uh, um, arrogant, almost, uh, very confident in their capacity to pass the referendum to, to move forward with a project with you. And Comcast went all out. Um, there was buses that seemed to have been sponsored by Comcast. <laughs> That's my understanding, too. <laughs> Taking people to the polls. And the only thing that those people knew was they were supposed to vote no. And I don't know what they got in return, but it must have been nice. Obviously, the no vote carried the day. Um, but again, that too was, was an interesting project. We were very interested in seeing if, um, the formula that we thought could succeed would work in a metro area. Um, Monticello was almost that because it was on the fringes of the Twin Cities, um, North St. Paul would have been deeper into that hub, um, but we didn't get the chance. Um, it, too, though, was an interesting exercise because, as you say, they were very confident that that the referendum would pass, and we had done a lot of work in the expectation that it would, too. Um, So we learned that probably shouldn't count chickens before they're hatched, as the old saying goes, and uh, uh, took away from it some knowledge that would, I suppose, play a part in future developments. But uh, 
I wish we could have done that project. I, I think you're right in saying that Comcast did us a favor. I, I'm not sure we could have been successful there given the attention the project would have gotten. Um, you know, nibbling at charter from Winona and Red Wing is, is different than nibbling at Comcast in North St. Paul. Almost on top of the Capitol. Well, right. And, and I'm sure everybody at Comcast saying, well, nobody in their right mind would just build North St. Paul. There's got to be a plan <laughs> here to move on, right? Quite frankly, um, there had been some synergies between Roseville and North St. Paul. Yeah, we were looking at Roseville. So Comcast, I, I think, wisely thought we can't really allow this to happen. Mm-hmm. So the next one that I'm aware of is, is Renville Sibley. Is that the next one? Um... Well, actually, we had two others, well, three really, that the first one that we did, which was an outside-the-box maneuver, was to provide ACE communication, a far southeastern Minnesota telephone co-op with video signal. Um, It was, for us, a very good partnership. I thought it was a good partnership for them, too. Uh, We cooperated on the purchase of equipment that was needed to re-digitize signal to send it over a long haul, Uh, although people probably wouldn't see Winona to Houston as a long haul Uh, by today's standards, and in return, ACE was getting free signal until we paid off uh, their share, the share that they expended. For some reason, unexplainable to me, and I think in many ways totally unexplainable, uh, they terminated the agreement long before they had managed to get their equity out of the project, and uh, when it went to mediation, um, the finding was on the side of HBC. Um, We would have much rather the project continued, but that was the first one. Ironically, and you're probably going to laugh at this, um, the, the second one was CenturyTel. We became a video provider for CenturyTel in Lacrosse. Yes, we actually we did cover that in the previous interview. Right, yep. and and uh, so we helped them get started in video. I, I think always knowing that if the experiment was successful, they would do something that would not encourage using HBC, and they did that. And, and we also helped a, another small cooperative on the Wisconsin side of the river, uh, Cochrane Telephone, to provide video signal. So those were all in the mix before the RS Fiber Renville Sibley project began. But that one um, appears at least from my vantage point, to be cranking up well. Um, I think HBC is doing the things it needs to do for that project to be successful. There's a pretty sizable um, HBC workforce and residents in those communities now, and that's pleasing to me too. So um, another way, I guess, to grab the local knowledge that we might not otherwise have had. You seem to have spent a lot of time helping Wisconsin communities for someone that I've seen enthusiastically tailgating uh, Minnesota football games. I, I <laughs> you know, Chris, <laughs> this, this is interesting because the first year um, I was married, I was the sports editor in Albert Lee, and um, the Wisconsin-Minnesota game was coming along and both my wife and I had the flu and uh, the marriage almost ended during the game um, because Ellen was 
aggressively cheering for the Badgers. No. And do, yes, and doing a great job of ribbing me um, because, unfortunately, the Badgers won the game. As they have almost every game yeah, for the, my lifetime. That's correct. And I was cheering for the Gophers. I'm happy to say that uh, Ellen today is just as big a Gopher fan <laughs> as I am. So, uh, But, yeah. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin, though, and so there's, the, you know, there's not much difference except for the river that runs between <laughs> us. Uh, the strips of land on either side are comprised of people of who are much the same. Those are the best rivalries, though. <laughs> oh, they are. They surely are. So the Renville Sibley Project, which listeners may be more familiar with as RS Fiber, um, ended up being a cooperative. And uh, so the cooperative owns the physical assets and HBCs providing services over it. And and I think you were a bit modest. The, the feeling I get in talking to people about RS Fiber is that HBC has gone above and beyond. Um, in terms of making sure that things would happen correctly, um, really, really going beyond what would be expected of a partner. Well, and, and you know, Chris, I uh, the project started under my tenure, but Dan Pecorina, the new CEO, is really the shepherd of of what has happened. But to me, that's what always should happen. Um, and I would like to think that it's an HBC habit uh, to try and go above and beyond. It's part of Minnesota Nice, mm-hmm. I think, and and it's part of the program that makes for successful ventures. Um, I always felt that we should pour into projects all of the knowledge we had and as many resources as could legitimately be spent. Um, And um, HBC is more capable today uh, than it was during my tenure. It's a much more successful company now. And um, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. That's very pleasing because... Um, I bumped into uh, Toby Brummer. Toby was uh, the head of a construction company, a tiny construction company that we purchased. And Toby is the resident manager. He lives, I think, in Winthrop. Toby's a happy guy. He's always been a happy guy, even when things were going wrong. And uh, he loves it over there. He loves the people. He's a farmer which fits very well, and uh, so, yeah, I, I am very pleased that the project is going well. One of the things that I feel like I've learned in watching, um, particularly from Monticello, I mean, I'll just, I think as we look back at these different partnerships, um, these networks are hard to build um, on their own. Um, you know, there's some companies that, that make it look easier than others, but they are hard projects. And when you do a partnership, sometimes there's this naive belief that that will make it easier because you're working with, uh, with someone that has experience or is better at raising capital or whatever the partnership is based on. In my experience, when the going gets toughed, which it inevitably does at one point or another for one reason or another, maybe it's technical, maybe it's competition, who knows, that puts stress on the partnership. And I, and I feel like... I've seen many more partnerships fold than, than many of the boosters of partnerships want to admit because one side wasn't willing to say, you know what, the contract isn't really clear on this, but we're going to make it work. We're going to go beyond. Uh, is that, I mean, is that yeah, something you see? I think, that's, I think that's a very accurate statement. We thought we had learned some things in Winona um, that could be helpful in Monticello. The Monticello people, trying to put the best spin on this, weren't in agreement. I mean, the one thing that we didn't want to do was get into a price war. Agreed, yeah. Because we thought that there was absolutely no way to survive it, and I don't think there is a way to survive that against a charter or a Comcast. They could give their product away for free, and the investors wouldn't notice a thing. Absolutely the case. And uh, it, it 
became difficult to um, try and serve the knowledge we had at the same time that we were trying to keep a partnership happy. Um, and ultimately, the best decision was probably made for both parties. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about Burlington. <laughs> I feel like we're, we're just like in a major lessons learned podcast here. Um, Burlington, which if, if people who are listening to this haven't heard my interview with Stephen Baraclaw, who was instrumental in, in working with Burlington during this time period, uh, it may be some important context. But um, Burlington got into trouble. My read on it is that uh, you had a mayor that came in after Burlington was being built. You're in a difficult period of expansion then. And the mayor put in someone to run Burlington Telecom that I think was very um, not transparent, was very opaque. And there were some problems. And that administration chose to hide those problems. And they got worse and worse until it spilled out in the public. And you have um, a need to invest more in the network. You have a network that didn't have enough customers. And you have a lot of frustration from the public when they learned about the problems that had been hidden from the city council. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take you back uh, just a little bit. Um, there was um, a gentleman um, that we both know, Tim Nolte, was the first CEO of the company. And um, I'm not sure, Chris, that I could exactly pinpoint for you the earliest problems with the system, but I remember we were asked to come in after money that the city didn't realize or the city council didn't realize had been spent, had been spent, and the city capital lease money had also all been spent. So Tim Nolte had been booted out more or less in 2007. You were brought in, I, 2009. 2009, yes. Nine. And Bob Kiss was still the mayor, but he was to lose the next election because what happened shortly after we were brought in is the city defaulted on its capital lease with city. Which is a terribly named company, and I'm always struggling to explain to people. So City, C-I-T-I, right, City Bank, which then labeled itself City, and I think lent money to Burlington without doing um, its proper due diligence in Correct. retrospect. Yeah. The first thing, as we looked at it, there were three of us who went to Burlington. We were to do a study of the network. You got blue ribbons for it. It was well, a blue ribbon committee, was my, my, my recollection. <laughs> yes, you're right. But... Any, in any event, what we discovered was a network that no one in their right mind would have built, in our opinion, uh, a network that cost several times too much, um, that exhausted the limited funds, and there laid a network that may have had the greatest potential for success of any I have ever seen that was built in a way that no one, in my opinion, of a right mind would have built. There was almost a home run, if you will, to every dwelling in Burlington. So what we're talking about in home run is a dedicated line from the head-end facility to the customer, which is not something that you find anywhere that I'm aware of. Maybe you know of there's, yeah, there's a few. I mean, usually usually in a, in a city the size of Burlington, you would expect that even if you were using home-run type technology, it would be to an aggregation point in a neighborhood or something Correct. like that. And I think the main concern is the incredible cost of, of fiber versus using some kind of technology in which you would oversubscribe more uh, in the fiber by using a passive optical networking or, or something like Correct. that. So just as we finished our study, the mayoral election, took place, and um, we had a new mayor uh, to work with and uh, made a bad mistake in my first meeting because I, I told the mayor that, in my opinion, he had a magnificent asset on his hands that could become successful if it were 
managed and operated correctly. And I don't really think the mayor wanted to hear that because I, I think that there was a great frustration in Burlington that um, led to an opinion that the best thing to do with the network was to sell it if, in fact, it could be sold and uh, just get out of the business. Tim Nolte, who I still consider a friend. Yeah, and so do I. I think Tim would have said that, that yes, he built it in that way to be future-proof, and, and um, he would justify that and say that the network would have been fine under his tenure if they had had a proper marketing campaign and things like that. One of the things that I understood during the Kiss administration, and this is a quote that I, when, when we were investigating, trying to figure out what had happened, because we have a very strong interest in learning when municipal fiber networks struggle, we want to know why. So we were investigating it, and someone told me that you could have moved into um, many parts of Burlington over the course of several years and never have even known that that was an option to get Burlington uh, telecom fiber. So, um, so I think... Like many things, there was um, there's root causes that different people can point to, and then they all conspire together to create uh, a real big problem. That's correct. Burlington Burlington Telecom had done little to attract customers to the network, and uh, that was a critical missing link. You know, I wouldn't have built the network that Tim built, but on the other hand, um, we could sit across this desk from each other and carry on um, a very friendly argument about the situation. It, it is, it's, it's worth noting that I have yet to find two people that would build the same network. There are extremes. I think HBC has found ways of building networks at as low a cost as possible, and that's been a, a part of your success. Um, and I think you know Tim tends to build them in his way, and he has his reasons. There's a lot of people in the middle that have still different ways of building networks. So um, people who are listening to this shouldn't be surprised when they hear these kinds of disagreements. But you should be aware that if you commit to a very expensive network, you sure have to find a way of bringing customers onto it quickly. Well, which means that you had better plan marketing expenditures very carefully because mm -hmm. you're going to need them. Um, you know, at the time we got there, the 17 million fiasco had broken, the Citibank fiasco was out in the public. Everything that you could imagine going wrong was going wrong. And if you walked into the BT office, you saw a group of people with their heads down reluctant, quite frankly, to look up. And, you know, Stephen uh, came to the party after we had concluded our first run. And, and then Stephen asked me to come out and spend a couple days with him talking about our analysis and um, then asked if we would stay on and help. There were so many hurdles to cross. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to see the company now upright. Um, it still has a way to go. You and I disagreed on who uh, should buy it uh, when they when they sold it, but like like other things, we we agree amicably, and and we yeah. we both desperately hope that it, it succeeds and expands. I do indeed, and you know I uh, I must say that that you probably well you clearly knew more about your choice than I did, <laughs> and. Uh, and I am not going to suggest that I know, knew more about my choice than you did. But I think with the right leadership, that can be a successful property. I think what it needs, um, they're going to need um, a fair amount of resource. They've got, they're sitting in the middle of a wonderful situation. I mean, you know, you have 150,000 people in the county of which Burlington is the mighty Chittenden county. county. Chittenden County. And, and so Winooski, you know, South Burlington, all of those communities could become part of that network. Yeah, these are people that do not like global corporations like Correct. Comcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
That's absolutely the case. Um, And so I think the right leadership will take them a long way and ultimately will make the city whole again and will also uh, demonstrate business viability at the same time that the right kind of leadership will have customer satisfaction as a key goal. You know, I don't think you can go into a competitive situation and operate like the incumbent and expect to succeed. No, no, the incumbents win by uh, inertia. Absolutely. And and so you have to identify every flaw that that competition has, and you have to work to exploit every single one of them. Right. One of the things that, that we've been wondering about is how many small companies and municipalities really advertise like their difference in privacy policies, for instance. Like, when was the last time HBC sold customer data to a third party? Yeah, never. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> never, and never would it happen. I'm convinced. Well, probably shouldn't say never, but I don't... It's hard to imagine why it would. Yeah, absolutely. Because for a small company like that, your reputation is everything. And the little bit of money you would make from it is is not that much. But if you're Comcast and you have 18, 22, 30 million customers, however many they have, you can make a lot of money and most of your customers don't have another choice. So Correct. Um, so I want to I want to round out by talking a little bit more widely about policy. Minnesota has the Blandin Foundation, which is somewhat unique and has been tremendously positive. And I think there's been a couple of negative side effects to the overwhelmingly positive benefits of Blandin. Uh, but but you've been on the Blandin board for probably forever. I mean, well, <laughs> I'm no longer a member of the you board. You had been. I I I was for from the earliest days. And this was a blend in broadband board. It was. It was. Not not the foundation board. What did what did they do? Well, I mean, tell me a little bit about the beginning of that and the strategies for how to to set the stage. Blandin is a um, is a foundation that's very focused on Greater Minnesota, the non metro regions. Um, they helped to send my wife to college, and I met her in grad school, so I'll be forever indebted to Blandin <laughs> for that. And they had a leadership program that had. Um, at least in our area of the state, made their name known. Um, They identified the broadband area as an area of potential for Minnesota. And I think most of our early efforts, Chris, were expended on trying to convince state government that it ought to be active in the broadband area. As government usually does, it didn't move as fast as we hoped it would. Some of the things that we lobbied hard for, uh, we'd we'd get a sliver, um, but certainly not the whole pie. And um, so ultimately, Blandon switched strategy to trying to do it um, more with the people who would benefit. Um, I, I thought that was a very good move. It concentrated mostly on planning and helping communities plan initiatives. And that's, that's where I really wanted to, to dig in a little bit. I mean, I think when I look at Blandin, there's a number of things that they have done. One is, I think, Ann Treacy's work on the Blandin blog is, is tremendous. It is. And it, I don't think a lot of people appreciate how important it is to have a place that is cataloging on a daily basis, talking about these sorts of things so people can understand what's happening. And, and Anne has been, a, coming from a family of librarians, <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> she's, yeah, she's wonderful. So one of the things that when people sometimes ask me for advice about what other states should do, I often say that Blandin has been incredibly successful in the planning part by offering matching grants. Their, their communities have to commit something, but it gives a real edge to those in the community that want something to happen because they can say, look, we're getting this great deal from Blandin. They're going to match the cost of this study, and that is going to help convince city councils to appropriate a little bit of money to do it. We're talking about usually on the order of ten to $15,000, which is then matched by Blandin. Right. If I had to look at the broader issue and 
beware of sweeping generalities, but I, I think that many of our city governments are populated by people my age or not too much younger than I am. And we didn't grow up with the connectivity uh, that we have today, and we didn't grow up understanding it or caring much either. And I, I think that victimizes us. Um, I think there's a problem in Minnesota today. I think it's that too few young people are really getting involved in the governmental activity in their local communities. Preach. <laughs> and, totally agree. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is it, it hurts us in many ways, but I think it hurts us particularly in the broadband area. And, um, you, you know, I, I think Blandon's wonderful. I remember Heather Gold talking to me once about um, she had just come to her position in the Broadband Association I suggested she look at Blandon as a model, and now there is a toolkit that's very similar to the Blandon toolkit that's being used nationally. Right. This is the fiber to the home primer, for which was just updated in late 2017. That's correct. It's terrific. Yes, absolutely terrific. And uh, Blandon's impact has been solid but quite frankly, should be much greater. Well, this is where, when, when we sat down and started warming up the mics before we recorded, I said something, and I wasn't sure how you would react, and, and that is, I feel that, we, we, you were mentioned, uh, we started talking about the rural electrification, Red Wing, Minnesota being one of the first, being the first REA site. And my impression from studying that period is electrification happened quickly and in such a great way with these co-ops that have been so good for rural America, because local communities organize them. And I still see in my greatest criticism of Blandin, not just, I don't want to centralize on Blandin, but everyone in Minnesota working on broadband issues, is it's so focused on getting the state to do something. There's not enough focus on getting communities to do something so that when state money is available, it could be put to good use. We were also talking about the value of vision versus money. Mm-hmm. If I had to look at at your statement, I would say you're right. Clearly, you're right. But it might be that Blandon's concentration has been where it's been because it determined that it wasn't going to have the kind of support out there, mm-hmm. if you will, that maybe it could find in four or five hundred legislators in St. Paul. It is a real worry because um, as we went to the tiny communities, if you will, to um, receive franchises, there was only one thing that people wanted to talk about, and that was cable TV pricing. Will you sell it to us for less money? And nobody was thinking about what this could do for their community and how to make it just as powerful as rural electrification was. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to—I really want to reiterate that that Blandon has been a um, not just net positive, but an incredibly net positive. And I don't want to say that because it's worth noting Blandon was right on open access. I think. 12 years ago, I mean, when they started pushing open access, the yep. carriers really resisted it. I think that would have been very good for Minnesota. I continue to be a believer in open access approaches. Uh, Blandon has had these conferences and employed Bill Coleman to really educate communities on what these words mean and, and yep. the importance of economic development and broadband. Um, it's had events that it has uh, put on despite the opposition and undercutting of the rural telephone companies in Minnesota, which I find really dismantling. Um, I understand that we have some differences of opinion, of opinion, but we all have to work together to, to solve this problem. So, um, so I would say that in terms of we want to talk about what Blandon might be able to do better or differently, if anyone from Blandon is listening to this, they should take heart that they've done a tremendous job of moving Minnesota forward. Absolutely. You know, I, I might think about painting with a brush not so broad, if you will. I mean... 
if you could identify in advance through some process the communities committed to doing something, then the relatively small resource you have might be deployed more effectively. You know, I would go to communities and I would say to them, folks, every community where there today is an HBC network is larger than it was when the network was built. Now, don't you think that message would resonate with people? And, and then, you know, those who were not interested would, uh, oh, but it costs too much, and where are we going to get the money? And it always came down to that. And, and you know, and the St. Charles lesson to me was absolutely incredible. The community, not the, the, community. Not the saint. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just for people who we haven't no, mentioned it yet yeah. this episode, but St. Charles is one of the first HBC towns you moved out to. It was, and, and we had no interest in doing that until their Economic Development Association came to us and knew clearly why it wanted us there. They wanted us there because they wanted to be the number one bedroom community to Rochester. Mm-hmm. To suggest that they have been unsuccessful in that goal would be absolutely wrong. Now, are they the number one bedroom community to Rochester? Well, I'm sure Byron would argue, Pine Island might, Orinoco might. But the fact of the matter is that St. Charles is significantly larger today than it was. It has more business that it did, than it did then. It doesn't have the geographical exa- advantages of all the other places you no. noted that are closer. I, I think that, um, you know, St. Charles has done a magnificent job. And once again, it was the issue of vision. Well, and I would, I would just say, we talked about Renville Sibley without mentioning Mark Erickson. Oh, Mark. Here's someone who talked about vision and, and, and stamina for five years uh, against struggle after struggle where one, one pathway was closed off after another. And, and he, I think, I still think of him as the heart of a, of a, of a group of people that, that all deserve endless praise for the work that they did. Mark, I just feel like we, he wasn't going to give up. Well, you know, it, it started, uh, it didn't start in Renville Sibley County. Mark, as the city administrator, wanted his community to succeed. I remember him dragging me to Seattle and Microsoft early in the HBC existence. And uh, this was back when Mark worked for HBC. No. Oh. oh. Mark was the city administrator. In a, Fairfield or right, right close uh, to there? It was, it was south of um, Wyndham. Wyndham. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Mark ultimately was dismissed as city administrator because of people being disappointed with the fact that too much activity and money was being spent on connectivity. Then he came to work for HBC. Then he got interested. He wanted to go back to his roots, and uh, he moved to Winthrop as city administrator then became economic development director and stepped out as city administrator, but... And now he's somewhere in Europe, I think, right this week. Touring. (laughs) Touring. He promised me he'd call when he got back, but it's been a while since his retirement party. Um, But, you know, Mark was tremendous. He, He was absolutely untiring in his efforts to get his communities to understand the importance of broadband and the Renville Sibley project is exclusively due to him. It is worth noting that, again, this wasn't just a disappointment occasionally of a plan not working out. There were people that were undermining him. There's still a whisper campaign that he's getting paid under the table millions of dollars from you or from HBC, which is Ridiculous. (laughs) Ridiculous. <laughs> that was also a rumor at the time that HBC or that ACE backed away from our partnership. And, you know, it's so ridiculous. Apparently, 
people just like to look for things to complain about. But Mark, Mark is someday going to be recognized by those communities as having done them an enormous favor. Yes. And, and a lot of people already credit him yeah. with that. And it, and I do want to note, if Mark was here, he would be both blushing and stammering and saying, no, it wasn't me. It was other people. Yeah, other would. people were essential to making it happen. But I, if you had to pick one person at the keystone, I... I There's no question it was Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this has been a, a, another great edition of the Minnesota history, I think, of, of, of how we've moved forward a bit, um, the role that HBC's played, the role that you've played in, uh, in your own personal role in some cases. Well, you, you know, I, I was raised by my grandmother who used to uh, have her hands full. Shouldn't have had to raise another generation after her own, but... Grandma always told me that the only thing I needed to worry about was always leaving the things I touched better than they were when I found them. And I hope someday somebody will say, you know, he did that. I hope someday when I see Grandma, she'll tell me I did that. (laughs) Chances are she'll find some fault with how I did it, however. (laughs) Always room for improvement. Always. Well, thank you, Gary, for another hour of your time. I greatly appreciate it, and um, looking forward to finding more things to talk about in the future. Good. Chris, um, as always, it's a pleasure. I've had more fun than you have. (laughs) Thank you. That was Christopher with Gary Evans, former president and CEO of Hiawatha Broadband Communications in southeastern Minnesota. For more about the company, visit hbci.com. You can also check out our coverage on muninetworks.org at the HBC tag. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research by also subscribing to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks again to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 302 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. (laughs) 